Amen. Well, what a great song for us to sing as we move back towards Daniel chapter 7. And uh, we started uh, to, to look at that last week and didn't have uh, that much time to do anything but maybe a quick overview uh, of uh, this uh, very significant transitional chapter in the, the book of Daniel. And we just did a quick kind of flyover and uh, probably left you with more questions and answers last week. But I'm glad you came back. And uh, the song we just sang is, is really about this, uh, this chapter and the rest of the book of Daniel. Of course, uh, that song, Even So Come, is based on uh, really the last exclamation of the book of Revelation uh, when John said, Lord, uh, come quickly. And uh, second only to the book of Revelation for uh, where we learn about end times prophecy or what's going to happen in the future uh, would be obviously the book of Daniel, the second half of Daniel, ch- chapter 7 through 12. And uh, the good news is uh, that we know how this thing ends. And so we, we can be encouraged and uh, we don't have to, uh, we don't know when it's going to end, but we know how it's going to end. And so uh, we don't have to sit there like we talked about last week, you know, on the edge of our couch, biting our nails, wondering if our team's going to be able to pull it out in the end, even though they're down by so many points, right? We already know. It's like we can kick back on the couch and go, hey, this is a great game. Oh, that's it, man. Yeah, go ahead. You know, rack up the score. It's okay because we're going to win. We're going to win. I know we're going to win. And so you can just relax and, and not have to be scared and not have to be nervous and and not to be, have to be afraid. And, and I think uh, as we look around uh, in our world today, there's lots of scary things happening. And uh, it would be easy to be fearful and anxious. But I was reminded this week of another hymn, uh, an older song that, that we've sung uh, as a church for years. And I mean not just this, this church, but the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's called This Is My Father's World. Are you familiar with that hymn, This Is My Father's World? And, uh, you know, we typically think of that song, we think about this is my father's world and all the verses that talk about the beauty of creation and all the things that he made. But there are some other verses uh, that I think maybe we um, uh, don't think about as much when it comes to this song. But let me, let me remind you of two significant lines that I think are very appropriate to our study of Daniel this morning. Uh, this is how it goes. This is my father's world, oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. There's a lot of wrong going on right now that seems so strong, right? But God is still the ruler. And then this is the other line. This is my father's world. Should my heart be ever sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. And we were talking about this this last week in our grow group, which we... um, concluded was a microcosm or is a microcosm of our church. And I don't know about your grow group, but our grow group has some significant stuff that we're dealing with in all of our lives, in our families, in our relationships, and, and, and in our health, and, 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 and there's a lot of stuff. And we spent the majority of our time this last Wednesday uh, praying for one another and bearing one another's burdens. And, uh, and, and we had just a few minutes at the end to, to discuss last week's sermon, and the transition was obvious to us as, hey, how does everything that we began looking at in Daniel chapter 7 relate to all that we just heard and prayed about for one another? And that's, guess what? There's hope. 
right? That prophecy gives us hope. It gives us peace. It, it helps us remember that it's not always going to be this way. Whatever it is going on in, in your life, uh, in, in our country, in this world, it's not always going to be this way. And so that was real, ultimately, <coughs> excuse me, God's design <coughs> for prophecy. And, uh, and that's why we have uh, prophetic books in the Bible. This apocalyptic literature, as it's called, um, is not just here to freak us out, to spook us. Um, it's to encourage us. It's to comfort us. It's to give us hope and confidence and peace. In fact, you have in front of you, hopefully, the notes uh, from the back table. And I want to just read with you uh, this, this theme here that, that uh, I've written out there. And it's really just the theme of the book of Daniel um, that I just uh, copied and pasted there in, in your notes this morning. But this is, uh, again, I think a great place to remind us of why the book of Daniel. <coughs> Excuse me. Daniel's life and ministry were ordained by God to encourage his people during the Babylonian exile by assuring them that he was still in control. You think about, here was the nation of Israel in bondage, if you will, in exile in the land of Babylon, and uh, they needed to be what? Encouraged. They needed some kind of hope. They needed some kind of comfort, some kind of confidence. And so through the stories and the visions of Daniel, God revealed his sovereign plans for world history and the coming of the Messiah through whom he would fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel, which provided the people who were, again, in bondage at the time with comfort and confidence while sojourning in a foreign land. By the way, does that sound familiar? That's us. We're, we're sojourning in a foreign land. This is not our home. Uh, we are in exile, if you will, as Christians living on planet Earth. <coughs> Kings and kingdoms on Earth will come and go, ultimately serving to advance the eternal purposes of the Most High God who has established His throne in heaven. <coughs> his kingdom is... I should just let you read this instead of me trying to read it for you, right? <coughs> I've got a cough drop coming here. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all those who honor and serve Him will reign with Him forever. While we wait for that glorious day to come, we can trust that God sovereignly or that God's sovereignty is reigning over all things, even when it seems like our world or our lives are spinning out of control. Now, does that not sound encouraging? I mean, that's, that's ultimately what, what we've got going on, not just back then when this book was written, but we've got what we have going on right now in our lives. And so, what, what is the title of the book of Daniel? We've got, it, we've got this, Our God Reigns. Serving the king of heaven in a world of pawns. Okay, so who are we talking about? We're talking about Donald Trump. We're talking about Hillary Clinton. We're talking about Putin. We're talking about Ayatollah whoever in Iran. We're talking about Kim Yoon crazy man in North Korea, right? We're talking about all these world leaders, right, that we see what's going on in our... And it's, it's like, what are we doing? We're serving the king of heaven. That's us. We're serving the king of heaven in a world of pawns. And God is raising up and putting down, raising up, putting down, raising up, putting down leaders and nations. <coughs> he's been doing that since time began, and He's going to continue to do that 
all for one purpose, and that is to, to build his kingdom and advance his kingdom. <coughs> and so that's what we see here in Daniel chapter 7. We see God's kingdom triumphing. And so uh, Daniel chapter 7 is a, a big transitional chapter, as I said. We're moving from the stories of Daniel to the visions of Daniel. And Daniel had some visions. <coughs> Excuse me. Hopefully we're going to get through this this morning. I've been um, trying to kick this thing for the last couple of days, and I was feeling good until I got up here. So we'll see how this goes. But uh, we've already known that Daniel was the one responsible for giving interpretations of visions <coughs> to these, uh, these world leaders, um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar. But now we also find out that he was receiving visions of his own. And we see here in chapter 7, verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. So we're going back now um, in time. Now this is before the lion's den, before Darius. This is back to chapter 5 where Belshazzar uh, was that um, grandson of Nebuchadnezzar who was very arrogant and boastful and had a huge party and uh, got the vessels from the temple of the Lord, which... which um, from the house of God in Jerusalem, and he was partying with these things, and that's when the handwriting on the wall came, remember, in Daniel chapter 5. And it was during that time that Daniel had these dreams and and visions. And so you really can divide chapter 7. It says he gave a summary here of it, of of this dream and vision that he had. You can divide uh, this chapter into two sections. You have the vision in verses 1 through 14. So all the way, chapter, chapter uh, verse 2 all the way through 14 is the vision. And then you have the interpretation in verses 15 through 28. So, <coughs> excuse me, that's one way to look at this passage is very simply the, the, the vision, 1 through 14, and the interpretation, verses 15 through 28. But the way I want for us to look at it this morning is I want to divide it up into three sections, and really it's the three kingdoms that we're given a glimpse into, or that I should say Daniel was given a glimpse into in his vision. We see the kingdoms of the world, we see the kingdom of Satan, and we see the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And ultimately what we're going to see in this chapter is the triumph of God's kingdom through the second coming of his son, Jesus Christ. And so let's look at these kingdoms uh, together with the background last week, and now we're just going to look, look at these um, kingdoms one at a time. First of all, the kingdoms of the world, again, starting in verse 2. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Um, now, winds uh, were representative of God's providential work and the affairs of men through angels. So in other words, something was about to happen. And it says that these four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The great sea, obviously, was the Mediterranean Sea. That's the centerpiece of the, of the Middle East there. And so the events of this dream take place in the Mediterranean world is, is what he's talking about. <coughs> we also know in Scripture that a restless sea is oftentimes a biblical image for the nations of the world. 
Um, one commentator put it this way, just as the waves and currents of the ocean are unpredictable, so the course of world history is beyond man's ability to chart or predict. From the human point of view, the nations seem to work out their own destinies, but the invisible winds of God blow over the surface of the water to accomplish His will in His time. So Daniel's saying, I was looking and I saw God's, God's providential working um, in the nations of the world. <coughs> now notice what he saw. Verse 3. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth and thus they said to it arise devour much meat after this i kept looking and behold another one like a leopard which had on his back four wings of a bird the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it after this i kept looking in the night visions and behold a fourth beast dreadful and terrifying extremely strong and it had large iron teeth it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, we mentioned this last week, that this uh, vision that Daniel had should sound familiar to us, uh, because it uh, really corresponds or parallels Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the magnificent statue in um, Daniel chapter 2. And uh, both visions, if you remember Daniel chapter 2, the statue... Um, represented four successive world empires. But Daniel's vision here really shows the difference about how man views the kingdoms of the world and how God views them. This is a, really the, the four evil nations uh, portrayed from God's perspective. He envisioned them as a series of these brutal beasts that went from bad to worse and devoured one another. Uh, each was more frightening than the other. And uh, these uh, these are... Truly hideous, they must have been hideous to look at in this vision. Um, just imagine some kind of chilling, disturbing kind of uh, science fiction monster, uh, the kind of stuff that nightmares are made of, especially the last beast was really indescribable. He didn't even know how to describe it. It was just this beast, this dreadful, terrifying looking thing. But who are these four beasts? Who do they represent? <coughs> well, taking our cue from Daniel chapter 2, the lion, in verse 4, obviously represents the Babylonian Empire. Um, a lion represented power and strength. The, the wings represented swiftness. The fact that the wings were ripped off and, and stood, the, the, the animal stood up on its hind legs, I think may have been a picture of how Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and made like a beast for seven years. Remember that? But then he was later restored. It says that Babylon became less beastly, if you will, more compassionate, I think, as a result of Nebuchadnezzar getting converted, getting saved. So that's the lion. And then the bear, uh, in verse 5, would represent the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, he's raised up on one side, which depicts how Persia was the more dominant of the two nations. Um, they, were, uh, they overshadowed the Medes. Um, there was three ribs here. They mentioned that we're in its mouth. Um, again, most likely represented the three previous victims that they had devoured, Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. 
So that's the bear. And then you have the leopard. Um, and this is obviously a fast, um, representing a fast nation, okay? The, the leopard is fast to begin with, but a leopard with wings, right, is even faster. And so I think this represented the speed with which Alexander the Great conquered the world. In just 13 years, uh, he had expanded Greece as far as, as India. And, uh, and, and so this, this is talking about the Greek Empire and how quickly it came to power. And uh, it has said it had four heads, which likely symbolized how the Grecian Empire uh, was divided between four of Alexander's uh, generals after his untimely death. He was only 33 when he died, but his kingdom was uh, divvied up to uh, four different rulers uh, in four different regions. And then you've got this fourth beast, which again, because of the similarities and the the, uh, correlation with chapter 2... Nebuchadnezzar's vision there, we know that this fourth beast represents the Roman Empire. And this final beast surpassed the others in its cruelty, its longevity. Um, It swept across the ancient world, defeating one nation after another. And it says that it had ten horns. And if you remember back from chapter uh, 10, um, the ten horns represent ten kings or rulers. Uh, Chapter 2 had ten toes. And so you, you say, well, what is that all about? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll touch that. Well, let's look for the interpretation, okay? So that's the, the vision. Let's jump to the interpretation section and, and see what all this meant. Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the vision in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Now, again, Daniel was usually on, or up to this point, he was in the interpreter role, but now he was the one needing an interpreter. So he went to this unknown interpreter who explained the vision to Daniel. Now, we don't know for for sure who this was. But in light of chapter 8, verse 16, and I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. Chapter 9, verse 21, while I was still speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision, previously came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, I I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. So, we know that Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, the same angel, right, who announced the coming of Christ to Mary and others, um, is, is uh, this is, the, he, he was busy before that ever happened, right? Um, he was the, the messenger angel, if you will. And so I think this is probably a Gabriel who was providing the interpretation of this particular vision in Daniel chapter 7. Now, based on other cross-references here in Revelation, well, let me just go ahead and read the rest of this here, um, starting in verse 17. Here's Gabriel giving him the interpretation. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Then I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, 
which is different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its, with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth, uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than his associates. We'll see that in just a second when we look at the second kingdom here. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints, the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of the kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another king will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. Now again, based on this passage and other cross-references in Revelation, um, one in particular, Revelation chapter 17, verse 12, Revelation chapter 17, verse 12, which says this, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. I think this fourth fourth beast represents the Roman Empire in two different forms. And we talked about this back in chapter 2, that you had the literal Roman Empire that arose after Greece, but then you also have the future, what you could call revived Roman Empire. There was a, a Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was ruling when Christ came the first time, but there will be a, a, a future revived Roman Empire, if you will, that will exist during the time of Christ's second coming. Uh, and, and basically what that means is at some point in the future, there will be ten kingdoms or kings or, or nations or leaders occupying the same territory that was originally part of the Roman Empire, um, form some sort of ten-nation confederacy uh, that will exist during the last days. And so that's why we often look to the Western nations, if you will, and particularly Europe as a place where uh, some of this uh, end times prophecy will be fulfilled because that was where the the Roman Empire uh, originally existed. And so you have the the kingdoms of the world here that are playing themselves out. And so again, we're seeing here a, a survey of world history from the time of Daniel all the way to not just the first coming of Christ, but the second coming of Christ. And we always have to remember that there's a gap that the Old Testament writers couldn't see between the first coming and second coming of Christ. They just saw the, the, the coming of Christ, just a big picture of the coming of Christ. And they didn't know at the time that it was divided into two sections. Now, we who look back toward the cross, we have the benefit of saying, okay, we, we understand the coming of Christ was in two phases. Uh, that was how it was originally planned, Right? And so we have the benefit of looking back and going, okay, so there's something else going on here. This is not just up until the time of Christ, the the, the nation of, or the Romans uh, government, or the the Rome, um, there's going to be something else like it when Christ returns. And so again, what are we doing? We're sticking to the obvious here and and not trying to dabble in the obscure, right? We can sit here all day and talk about all these numbers and all these symbols and what does this mean and what does this mean, but what what are we trying to do? We're trying to get the big picture here and what's the obvious thing, that there will be a a, a group of nations that will be dominant uh, when Christ comes the second time. And, And out of that kingdom, or the kingdoms of the world, if you will, will come the kingdom of Satan, 
the kingdom of Satan. That's our second point here this morning. Notice verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, these ten horns that he saw, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. Notice verse 11. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. You say, okay, what is this little horn? We're introduced to this little horn that, that seems to be kind of like a Tasmanian devil kind of person uh, who tears up other kingdoms at least three of them, pull them up by the roots and, and becomes the dominant one here. So uh, the, the, the horn, just the horn itself, a horn in Scripture is often used as a symbol of a ruler or of some royal authority. You see that in, in, in 1 Samuel, you see it in the book of Psalms. Uh, again, I believe this is clearly a reference to the person that we know from Scripture who's called the Antichrist. That's who this little horn represents. And this is the first time this satanically inspired individual is mentioned in the Bible. It's right here in, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, in this little horn. And notice how this, how this Antichrist will be extremely intelligent and extremely arrogant. It'll, you could describe this person as a brilliant boaster. And uh, I chuckle that some people are already saying that Donald Trump is the Antichrist. Uh, I don't think so, but he does fit the description in some way uh, of being a brilliant boaster um, and very arrogant and, and, and saying all sorts of things. And, and, but, but notice the, the interpretation here again, going back to uh, verses 20 uh, and 26, um, Daniel chapter 7, verse 20 uh, the meaning of the ten horns that were on his head and the other horn which came up and before which three of them fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than its associates. So this is a larger-than-life figure uh, who's going to dominate. I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. And so this, this Antichrist person is Antichrist and Antichrist followers. And so he's going to attack the saints, he's going to go to war against us, against the, the followers of Christ, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints, the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So he's going to go to war against us, but he's going to lose because God is going to come um, through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and judge the Antichrist and his armies, uh, ultimately, and Satan, and they'll be cast into the lake of fire. Um, verse 23, the, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be a different from all the other kingdoms again. <coughs> Excuse me. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will rise and another will arise after them. He will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one and will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they'll be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. 
but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Again, talking about how arrogant the Antichrist will be, he will actually speak out against God himself. And so uh, we're going to see here uh, in Daniel chapter 9, when we get there, how is this all going to play itself out? Well, according to Daniel chapter 9, um, the Antichrist will make some kind of covenant with Israel for seven years. And he's going to appear to be Israel's friend at first, but then he'll turn on them and become Israel's persecutor, and he'll break his covenant with them at the halfway point of that covenant, and will go to, to war against God's people for the remaining three and a half years. And that's what most Bible commentators would say um, verse 25 means when it says uh, they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. And so the Antichrist, what he'll do is he'll set himself up as God in Jerusalem and will attempt to usurp Christ's role as the rightful ruler of the world by destroying God's covenant people. And at the end of the seven years of great tribulation, again, we're, we're driving a lot of this with the book of Revelation, Christ will return and destroy the Antichrist and his kingdom. We see that in Revelation chapter 19, uh, verses 19 and 20. It says this, And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him, against Christ, who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns, burns with brimstone. So in the same way that Satan, and this is interesting how this all comes together, and, and, and the, 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 the creation of the world and the end of the world, if you will, all comes full circle. In the same way that Satan was cast out of heaven as a result of his prideful rebellion against God, so the Antichrist will be cast into hell when Christ returns. And after crushing the Antichrist and his kingdom, Christ will establish his kingdom on earth in fulfillment of God's covenant with Israel. And we see that in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And this is the, the portion of Scripture that's often um, uh, argued about what, what is actually going on here. Um, but in, in, in uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, it says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon and the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark of their forehead on their forehead and on their hand, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, the rest of the dead will, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over, those, over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That's what we know as the millennium, the millennial kingdom. 
that Christ will reign, set up his kingdom for a thousand years, and I would understand that to be a thousand literal years that Christ will reign, and, um, and, and this earth will be a different place. And uh, ultimately, what is happening there, I believe, is the eternal covenant that God made with David uh, will be ultimately fulfilled uh, by Jesus Christ when a descendant of David will sit on the throne in Jerusalem and reign over the entire earth. And you need to have a millennial kingdom for that to, to, to be fulfilled. If you remember what Gabriel told Mary in Luke chapter 1, he, she just, he just repeated the, the, um, the, the, the Davidic covenant to her uh, from 2 Samuel chapter 7. In Luke chapter 1 verse 31, uh, this, is what, this is what Gabriel said. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And so we see here um, the kingdom of Satan will ultimately be crushed by the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies about um, the descendant of David who will sit on, on, on the throne in Israel or throne in Jerusalem forever and ever. Now, we don't have time to do this this morning, but you might want to just jot down 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12, and Revelation chapter 13, 1 through 10. Revelation chapter 13, 1 through 10. Those are two of the clearest passages in the New Testament about this person that we know as the Antichrist, the Antichrist. And uh, those two passages uh, are really helpful in describing who this in- individual will be. And, and I think the, the most helpful part of particularly 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is Christ will not return until this Antichrist has been revealed. Okay, so we know, it's, again, we don't know exactly when Christ is going to return. Uh, even Jesus in his human form didn't know when that was going to happen. That's a, a date set by the Father, and, it's, and not even the angels know that. So don't ever follow some teacher that says, oh, by the way, I think this is going to happen, you know, on December 13th, you know, 2018, Jesus is coming back, or the Antichrist is going to be revealed here. Listen, we don't know exactly when Christ is going to come back. But we know one of the signs to look for is that there will be a clear uh, world leader who has deceived uh, many, many people um, and, and made some kind of covenant with Israel. And so we have all these signs to look for. And that's why anytime any news happens, any changes happen in Jerusalem or the nation of Israel, uh, you should watch that very carefully on the news because that's where it's going to go down. Something's going to go down there uh, in, in Israel um, and, and, and just the way the, the landscape's going to be changing in the future, um, that's going to tip us off as believers that, hey, it's coming. Christ is coming back soon because of this uh, new change or this new leader or this new covenant or this new uh, treaty or whatever that's happening uh, with the nation of Israel. And so we've seen the kingdoms of the world. We've seen the kingdom of Satan. And then the third thing that, that was revealed to Daniel uh, in this vision was the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And this is, uh, 
worth the price of admission right here, all right? We're not watching the movie. We're reading the book, right? But this is worth the price of admission. Look at what he saw in verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So here's Daniel picturing this fifth and final, if you will, king and empire. And this is the glorious kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ who will be given universal dominion. This is the, this is the, the rock coming. Remember the rock, the stone, uh, not hewn by hands, human hands that came and destroyed that statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw. This is the same imagery here. Now we know the Ancient of Days is God the Father. Uh, this, is, uh, uh, this is a, a reference to his eternality. Um, the white snow, the pure wool represents his holiness. The throne represents his sovereignty. The fire represents his wrath. Uh, the wheels here represent his providential workings. If you remember in Ezekiel chapter 1, it's, he, he's, God's represented as a wheel within a wheel. And you're like, what in the world's going on here? And it's just talking about God's providential workings. Um, and Daniel's vision here in, in, in chapter 7, is very similar to John's vision of God in Revelation uh, chapter 1. Remember this? In Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, his eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it was made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he had seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining uh, in its strength. Again, you see the similarities there between the John's vision in Revelation and Daniel's vision here in, in Daniel chapter 7. Look at what, what else he says in the last two verses. I love this. If you don't have this circled, starred, boxed in, bracketed in your Bible, do so now. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and, king, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Of course, the Son of Man, one like the Son of Man, uh, is obviously Jesus Christ. Um, we know that because this was Jesus' favorite description of himself. He would call himself the Son of Man often, 82 times in the Gospels, this title is used to describe Jesus. Um, again, this was how Jesus most often referred to himself. 
And so I wonder if this was Jesus' favorite Old Testament passage. When you think about it, right, he drew his title from this passage, like a son of man was coming. And so when Christ, the Son of Man, returns, God the Father will appoint him as the ruler of his eternal kingdom. He will be declared the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as we know in Philippians chapter 2, every tongue will confess, right? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One commentator said it this way, the messianic Son of Man is brought before the throne of the Ancient of Days to be awarded the crown of universal dominion. This refers to his appointment as absolute Lord and Judge by virtue of his atoning ministry as God incarnate, the one who achieved a sinless life, paid the price for man's redemption, and was vindicated by his bodily resurrection as judge of the entire human race. Listen to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. What a glorious picture we have here. Um, But that's still not the best part. You might be like, hey, this is awesome. This is exciting. This is Jesus coming and he's, he's reigning. But there's something else that Gabriel, if it is Gabriel who's interpreting this, wanted Daniel to understand that God's people, the saints, will share Christ's everlasting kingdom and will reign with him. Again, verse 18 but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Verse 22, until the ancient days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. And then verse 27, <coughs> excuse me, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to, notice it doesn't say to Christ, it says given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. And so the emphasis here in this vision and this interpretation is not so much that Christ is going to come and set up His kingdom, but the emphasis is, and guess what? You're going to reign with Him. You're going to reign with Him. And of course, we, we, we see this reigning with Christ principle Throughout the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Um, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, then I saw the thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. <coughs> And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Chapter 6, again, blessed, or verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part 
in the first resurrection over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Chapter 22, verse 5, and there will no longer be any night and they will not have any need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. And then 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says this, if we endure, we will also reign with him. I mean, come on. Isn't that cool? And that's what he wanted. That's what God wanted the nation of Israel or the people of Judah who were in exile to remember, hey, you might be in bondage. You might be being ruled over right now by this pagan nation, the Babylonians. A lot's going to happen between now and when Christ comes. But ultimately, guess what? He's going to win, right? He's, God's in charge. Christ is going to come. The Messiah is going to come. And guess what? You're going to be delivered from this oppression, and you're going to get to reign with Christ forever and ever. Now, quickly, just look back at Daniel chapter 7, and look at the last verse. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarmed, excuse me, were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Notice he says the same thing in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. What's the point here, okay? This was not just some intellectual academic study for Daniel. And I think whenever we come to prophecy, uh, and, you know, I was, I went to Bible college, went to seminary, and whenever we got to the prophecy, it's like here came the charts, and here came all these things, and the pictures, and the images, and those are helpful at times, because some of this is hard to figure out, but it was all these charts, and it was all very academic, and, and, and you're trying to figure this all out, and make sure you got all these dates right, and all this, you know, all the different steps, and the seven years, and the mid-trib, and the post-trib, and the pre-trib, and all this kind of stuff, and, 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 and it really, it's hard, or it's easy to let this become purely academic, and, 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 and just some intellectual information, if you will. But notice, that was not the case for Daniel. This was deeply moving. This was even a a troubling experience for him. He he was physically and emotionally and practically engaged in God's prophetic program, and so should we be. You you see what I'm getting at? We shouldn't just sit there and go, okay, I'm I'm trying to figure this out, and it's like, well, this is kind of like, I feel like I'm sitting in Bible class today you know, and try to figure all this stuff out. And no, this has to be very practical. This needs to be engaging. This is far more than figuring out, you know, how the world's going to end, all right? The point is, if you're not a Christian, okay, practically speaking, knowing the world that is going to end someday should make you feel uneasy and cause you to seek refuge in the winner. Get on the winning team now. Today, and the winning team is Jesus. He's the the one who uh, died on the cross and took the wrath of God upon himself so that we would escape the coming worldwide judgment. 
And all of us someday are going to face that judgment. And the only people that will be rescued and delivered from that judgment, will be saved from that judgment, are those who are in Christ. The Bible says, he who has the Son has life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not have life, for the wrath of God abides on him. And so, listen, if you're you're not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then yeah, this end time stuff should freak you out a bit. It should spook you a bit, because you realize, I'm not ready. And if Jesus were to come back today, I would be judged by Christ rather than embraced by Christ, protected, preserved, rescued by Christ. Last um, week I mentioned the film 2012, a very popular movie a few years back. Um, The movie's plot, very interesting, involved a secret organization known as the Institute for Human Continuity, and they were aware that the world was about to end, and so they began constructing these huge arcs, ironically, beneath the Himalayan mountains to save a select group of people to repopulate the earth after it was destroyed. The problem was they weren't in agreement about how and when the governments of the world would alert the appointed citizens. And so they had these heated discussions about how to select those who would be chosen to survive the final judgment. Well, guess what? The Bible makes it clear the only ones who will survive the final judgment are those who embrace Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And as God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, He is like an ark. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but the whole story of Noah's ark is a picture of the gospel, that here's this judgment coming upon the earth And there was a place of refuge that God provided, this one family in the ark. Well, ultimately, that is a picture of Christ and the provision that God has provided for our protection and our deliverance from the coming world judgment. And Noah and his family were saved by the ark, rescued by God from this global flood that destroyed the entire earth. And in the same way, anyone who repents of their life of sin and commits their life to follow and obey Jesus will be spared from God's wrath that will one day come upon all mankind and destroy the entire earth. Listen to what Jesus himself said, the Son of Man, who Daniel 7 is all about. Listen to how Jesus described this in Matthew 24, which, by the way, is another key uh, prophetic text or apocalyptic text. This is what we know as the um, Olivet Discourse, where Jesus gave insight into his return. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 37... He said, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. By the way, this was in the same context where he said, truly, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Um, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. So he's saying, hey, even I don't know when God is ordained for this to go down. But he says the coming, of, I, I do know something. He says the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that, that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man be. So in other words, everybody's going to be going about their business, eat, drink, and be merry, and, and, and getting married, and, and going to work every day. It's just going to be like, everything's going to be hunky-dory, normal, no big deal. Some crazy guy over here is building some ark, yeah, whatever. 
And yeah, there's some crazy people over here talking about Jesus returning, these Christians, you know, well, yeah, whatever. And he says, going to come just like that, unexpectedly, suddenly. It says, verse 40, then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, he says, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming, but be sure of this. That if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Well, that should be a wake-up call for anybody that doesn't know Christ. You say, well, I got time. You know, I'm young. Right? I got the rest of my life. Listen, you don't know if it's going to be this afternoon. You don't know if it's going to be tomorrow, next week, next month. You don't know. And, and, and that's, the, that's the whole point of all of biblical prosody is we don't know exactly when he's coming back, but we know he's coming back. And the, I guess the question is we don't know when. And the fact that we don't know when, right, should motivate us, should urge us to, to, to get right with the Lord. And so the question is, are you ready for the world to end? Are you ready for Christ to come back? Do you know what will happen to you if the Lord were to return this week? Will you be saved from God's wrath or will you be swept away by it? Like it says, one will be taken, right? Two people standing there, one will be taken. Talking about being taken away in wrath, being swept away by the flood of God's wrath. That's for those of you that aren't Christians. How about those of you who are Christians? Listen, we're living in times that are tough to stand up for God and to stay true to Him. Wouldn't you agree? And it's only going to get worse. But I would submit to you that, there, that, that, that our times are no tougher than the times in which Daniel lived. I mean, it, it, we saw in Daniel... Chapter 1 through 6, he showed us how to stand up for God and to stay true to him in the midst of a very pagan culture where people are getting thrown into lion's den, into furnaces for not bowing down to the leader of the day. Now here in the second part of Daniel, chapter 7 to 12, he's going to show us why we should stand up for God and stay true to him. Not how. We already learned how to do it. He showed us how. Now he's telling us why. And the point is this, that no matter what we're going through, in our lives, or what is going on in our world. We should be encouraged to endure. Why? Because we know things won't always be the way they are. And despite how things may look or feel, Christ is coming back to make all things right, and we will reign with him forever. Amen? Listen to the words of Spurgeon. C.H. Spurgeon said this, If we believe that the Lord Jesus has come the first time, We believe also that he'll come the second time, but are these equally assured truths to us? Have we with equal firmness grasped the thought that he's coming again? Do we say to each other as we meet in happy fellowship, yes, Lord cometh, like we just sang uh, this morning. We should sing that song with gusto, even so come, anytime that we have an opportunity to sing that. He said, it should be to us not only a prophecy assuredly believed among us, but a scene pictured in our souls and anticipated in our hearts. My imagination has often set forth that dreaded scene, but better still, my faith has realized it. I have heard the chariot wheels of the Lord's approach, and I have endeavored to set my house in order for his reception. 
I have felt that shadow of that great cloud which shall attend him, damping the ardor of my worldliness. I hear even now in spirit the sound of the last trumpet, whose tremendous blast startles my soul to serious action and puts force into my life. And then he said this, Would God that I lived more completely under the influence of that august event, that awesome event. Would that God, would for God, right? Would God that I lived, that we lived more completely under the influence of the return of Christ. That we really believe it's going to happen and that it could literally happen at any moment. And I think the realization that Christ could come back anytime should motivate us to get our act together <laughs> and live lives with great urgency and great purity. Like 1 John chapter 2 says that we know that when we see him, we'll be like him. And, and those of us who have that hope, what? We purify ourselves. In other words, we want to live pure and holy lives. And so when we truly believe in and meditate on the imminent return of Christ, it will have a purging, a purifying effect in our lives, but it'll also have an urging effect in our lives. That, hey, there's, there's unsaved family members and friends and coworkers and classmates that, that they need to know about Jesus, and I want to tell them while there's still time. And so it urges us, it motivates us to be evangelistic uh, in our lives as well. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this chapter, and we could spend weeks, months, um, looking at all that is here and, 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 and seeking to make application of it to our lives. But I pray this brief overview this morning will, will stimulate our hearts and our minds. Lord, and I pray particularly for anyone who may be with us this morning who is not a Christian, who is yet to truly repent of their life of sin and commit their life to follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that, that the thought of Christ's return would motivate them, not so much out of fear, but out of love and, and, and gratitude that, that Christ has made a way for us to be delivered from his wrath. Uh, and that was through his death and resurrection. And I pray that they would embrace Christ today. Lord, for the rest of us who know and love Christ, I just ask that you would um, just encourage our hearts. Lord, use this to stimulate us and, and motivate us to live more pure and holy lives, to be less worldly and and, and more evangelistic and more zealous with the gospel, Lord, and that we would just get excited uh, about uh, the fact that we get to reign with you someday. And Lord, that we would never, um, uh, we would never live in fear or, or be anxious, Lord, no matter what we experience, because we know ultimately you're in control and that you sovereignly reign over all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.